The Indie Live Radio team is very grateful to the Independence for Scotland Party, ISP, for sharing their climate change group meeting. This was originally a two-hour meeting, so has been edited for length into topics, which include an introduction, energy performance certificates, using real data, geothermal heating, the Scottish National Energy Company, district heating systems, ground source heat pumps, bringing properties up to the required standards, incineration plants, smart meters and hydrogen. Some fascinating subject material there. If you would like to watch the film of the meeting, it's available on the Indie Live Radio YouTube channel. Now over to ISP to introduce their guest speaker, Dr Keith Baker. Tonight we've got Dr Keith Baker. Keith is a researcher in fuel poverty and energy policy at the Built Environment Asset Management Team Centre in Glasgow Caledonian University. So he's a co-founder of the Energy Poverty Research Initiative and a member of Commonweal's Energy Working Group. His work for Commonweal includes policy papers on energy performance certificates and the case for a national energy company and Scottish Energy Development Agency. And he's the co-editor of the books a critical review of Scottish renewable and low carbon energy policy and the Polgave handbook on managing fossil fuels and energy transitions. He has also just been nominated as a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in recognition of EPRI's work on fuel poverty. He lives in Inverkeething with his wife Abby and their dogs Molly and Maisie and their cat Forks. Okay, um, nice to meet you all and thanks to Colette and Nick and John and everybody at ISP for, for organising this. Topic one energy performance certificates. The reason we're so hot on this at the moment is because the um, the government, you know, the Scottish government is currently consulting on reforming energy performance certificates. So for those of you not familiar, and I, go, I guess anybody who's ever bought or sold a house will know what one of these certificates is. They are used to label the, the energy performance of, of homes. They are based on a model known as the, uh, the Buildings Research Establishment Domestic Energy Model, which is now in version 12. The model's not bad. Um, in the sense that it can predict how much energy used by the heating and hot water systems of a modern building without any people in it. It was originally developed in the early mid-1980s based on a survey of 53 energy efficient homes in Milton Keynes Um, and it has improved quite a lot but it's still nowhere near off getting an accurate figure for how much energy any particular home uses. This is stuff that buildings researchers have been telling the government, Westminster and Holyrood, for years and years and years. So none of what I'm going to be saying is particularly controversial at all. Which makes you wonder why we're still using it. And makes you wonder why most home energy assessments are done using a reduced data approach. So we have Breedem the model, and then the tool that sits on top of it is the standard assessment procedure known as SAP. And there's a version of SAP called the reduced data set standard assessment procedure data in inverted commas on that one and that's what you get your home put through if you need an epc to sell it or to rent it out these things are based on stupid amounts of assumptions you might get a vaguely accurate figure for a building in milton Keynes with you know with a nice sensible occupancy regime and you know a nice sensible heating system and stuff the moment you apply that to a traditional building somewhere in the north of scotland you can forget it any good building surveyor any good state agent will tell you they're not worth the paper they're written on but we still use it. And that is the primary driver for energy efficiency and fuel poverty in the, um, within Scottish government policy thinking. The Scottish government has, has got this consultation, which closes tomorrow. Um, and we've submitted a response that's up on our website. Um, we, we've got quite a punchy media release about to go out as well. And we've also just published an evidence document, which is making some fairly strong accusations. Back in 2012, 2013 to 2014, I led a review of the energy assistance package for the Scottish Government, which was their, at the time, was their flagship fuel poverty scheme. And a lot of it went fairly well. It was composed of four stages. Stage four was managed by Scottish Gas, who were the incumbent energy company. They'd actually taken on the contract basically as a lost leader. The the previous incumbent, Eager, had, um, was given about, was it 18 million to run it? Anyway, um, I basically decided not to retender for it because they weren't getting enough money um, to deliver what they were contracted to deliver. 
Scottish Gas took it on partly for the PR, partly because they wanted to be seen to be doing good. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna knock them. They were very, very open as part of the process. When they were told that they, that they weren't doing everything they should have done, they just put their hands up and said, well, you know, what do you expect us to do? Here's all our KPIs, here's all our figures. Um, and we're only doing as much as we reasonably can. Um, they did get a telling off from the minister, one in public and another that wasn't disclosed at the time, but I'm not gonna spend time knocking them because they were quite open with us. Um, I interviewed 14 different stakeholder organizations, so it was 18 interviews in total, and there were some quite clear messages coming back, really strong, clear messages. And the main one of those was that it seemed that the, the scheme was designed around what the delivery body agency for stages one to three thought they could deliver rather than what was needed, and that was the Energy Saving Trust. A couple of years later, um, I got contracted to do a, a report for Citizens Advice Scotland, who are great. So we did, uh, we produced a report called Taking the Temperature, great, nice, great bit of work to do. And one of the recommendations we put into that was we wanted all um, future schemes to, uh, all future fuel, uh, energy efficiency and fuel poverty schemes to be designed with independent monitoring and evaluation built into them from the start. So, yeah, that was where we got to. And a lot of this relates to EPCs, which the Energy Saving Trust gets a lot of funding out of delivering, funnily enough. Um, so what we are now doing, we've published this evidence summary. This was something that me and Ron wrote um, for Kevin Stewart, the minister. Um, we sent it to him back in uh, March 2020, it was. And we got quite an urgent reply saying, I'm going to get my advisors to, to engage with you on this as a matter of urgency. Well, then the virus hit. So that was delayed um, until I think it was March of this year. In the meantime, we moved on um, because Ron and I got, got, you know, got a bit tired of being constantly asked, if we don't have EPCs, what do we have? So our first bit of work for Commonweal was, um, was writing this um, energy performance certificates and alternative approach paper which went down great with a lot of people we wanted it to go down well with. Um, and we're not going to say what we've got in it is a perfect solution, but, you know, we've got years of experience and we've spoken to an awful lot of people um, in our field. And we think we're a lot of the way there. We think it's the sort of paper that you could stick in front of a group of professionals around a table discussing what we need to do and use it as the basis for something that we'd all agree on. EPCs are required under the European Union's Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. So, you know, it's part of their, their wider approach to energy labeling of products and buildings and everything else. And um, first thing we did was we looked at EPPD and we thought, right, what's it actually saying? What's the guidance actually saying? And our big concern all along is the use of real data. You know, why are we using model data when actually the energy companies collect it? Um, Westminster collects it because that's how I got hold of um, the data for my PhD. So as an addition to that, we said, well, actually, well, well, you know, when you come to get your EPC, what's stopping, what's stopping you saying, well, like, well, the householder just has to call up their energy company and say, can you give me your, you know, my last year's energy consumption and costs, which they are legally required to do. So we'll see where we get with that on the reforms. Um, another thing we've, we've suggested and we think they might actually take up is the idea of putting um, some sort of suitably anonymized contextual data in. A little bit of information about the, previ about the, the previous householders, you know, who's selling it or who was renting it before. Sort of number of people, you know, what their sort of occupancy, what their working patterns were, um, if there'd been any breaks in, or, you know, people going away for weeks or months at a time, anything that might make the information a bit funny. It would give people some idea of how their energy bills and their energy consumption might vary, you know, um, and it's not perfect. And I don't think we will ever get to a perfect, perfect approach. But fundamentally, we have to be using more real data. Now, the reasons for that, um, we've, we've put a look, quite a long list in our, in our uh, media release that's going out. But we will get issues like, for a start, you'll get wrong measures recommended. These things significantly under or over report what home's actual energy consumption is. That could mean that if you get some measures installed, you might be underheating. So you might get an air source heat bump, but it might not be sized to be big enough. You might, like in my old house, get told, oh, you need to put your loft insulation up to 250 millimeters of loft insulation, which is a good recommendation for a lot of houses. But this was an old stone terrace um, with a cracking heating system in it. And the loft insulation I'd used was um, a mixture of um, sheep's wool and recycled plastic. 
I put 150 mil in and the guy who did it agreed with me. He's like, that's all you're going to need. And the reason for that, funny enough, is when you get heat wave, as we get regularly now, um, my upstairs was overheating. But if I topped up to an extra 100 millimeters, uh, that upstairs where I had my home office as well um, was going to be overheating regularly during the summer. Now, I'm just waiting for the first lawsuit for somebody lo losing income by not being able to use their home office, particularly given so many of us are now working from home. Ron and I have also pledged to offer free expert witness advice to anybody who wants to challenge the Scottish government where they've been told to make improvements and that are not suitable or not appropriate and lead to any of the many consequences that can happen. As you guys know, the Scottish government is talking about making homeowners and, and landlords make mandatory energy efficiency improvements to their properties. And it was when that sort of news started feeding out, we thought, right, we've got to say something. So, so you know, we've offered free expert witness advice. Not sure what the current situation with that is. They backtracked it. We still think it's coming, but we don't know when. Um, and it's one of these things that actually, in many ways, you'd think, oh, you know, particularly if somebody works on climate change, something that we really, really want to see. Great. But the problem is, if EPCs are going to be telling people what they need to do, then you're going to cause so many problems and you'll undermine trust in, you know, fundamentally, you'll undermine trust in science and, you know, the whole climate change agenda. Topic two, using real data. The, the, the real-time data with that plug into the sort of, if you like, the physical measuring data that they have now, whether it's you know, the size of rooms and windows and window heat performance and things like that, or is yeah. there rewriting the programming, basically? The first thing you can do with it is you can use it to improve the model, and that model does take into account some of that data if it's collected. Yeah. And the problem is, if, you know, if you've ever had a home survey done, that building surveyors because they don't have to, not because they can't, because they don't have to, they don't do a full inspection. Some will do drive-bys. Yeah. I was speaking to an architect friend of mine recently who um, had just had one done, and he was saying, oh, they just came in, they, they gave it, what was it, half a look round, and they, they decided they yeah. knew everything about it, and that was it. And this is not the fault of building surveyors, because they are technically trained people. But if you're getting paid effectively by the government, because they have to be done, but you know, if you're getting allocated a certain amount of money the going rate for doing an EPC, you're not going to spend as much time in a property. Um, things like health and safety. If there's not a fixed loft ladder, the building surveyor can, rightly or wrongly, refuse to go and look in the loft. Well, my old property had fixed loft ladder, and the surveyor who came around, she said, I'm not, you know, she didn't want to go up there. So you can't actually verify how much loft insulation I've got and what type it is. You're just going to believe what I say. We do have a lot of good monitored data on very, very specific types of properties, but buildings are highly individual. So you might look down the street of tenements or terraces or whatever and think, oh, they're all the same, or they're all effectively the same. And that's what some surveyors will do. The reality is that fairly small problems and they're usually maintenance problems can create big differences. Um, or the gap in your loft insulation that's leaking heat. Well, you know, that's not gonna be the same, you know, the same defect as the house next door. So really, it's giving, uh, you know, as best as possible, a representation of how much energy any individual building is using and accepting that will change by, you know, the, the types of people that live in it. So I think I'm also doing um, Scottish Household Survey, Condition Survey every year. And uh, the EPCs, we've, reviewed, we've relying on them more this year because we're not allowed to go into people's properties. So to help us, they've given us access to the EPCs and they you can just tell when you roll up at the property I've, I've been to a couple and they've actually the EPC is not the same building as I'm looking at oh. I don't know what building it is but it's not the right building I'm going to a bungalow and actually the address is a two-story terrace so the EPC date is flawed basically yeah and we're, we're, we're supposed to make a judgment on that but so I, I knew you're right we're not allowed to go in even when we're just doing condition surveys we're not allowed to go into the attic if it's a if it's a loose ladder yeah, and the Scottish House Condition Survey is a cracking bit of work. The, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's really good. But um, and normally, we were going into people's houses, they, most of the teams that I'm working with are quite, you know, they're usually ex-surveyors or architects or local authority guys. So they do tend to know their buildings, you know. But mm. well, this, this year, we're having to fall back on EPCs a lot, and the data's just it's rubbish. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I'll mention, um, when they're validated, um, they take a very, very small sample. I think it's 5% of all EPCs are uh, effectively spot check validation. You'll know this. But they validate them against the model. They don't actually validate them against real energy consumption. They just validate them against what another 
surveyor has put into the same model? Sometimes a, a tenement building is occupied by private ownership or council housing, cooperation housing, whatever, um, and they're run by a factor. Who's then responsible if it's recommended something needs to be done with the loft of that actual tenement building? Well, we don't want to risk giving you a definitive answer. We do have the Tenements Act, and I know it's been amended at least slightly for energy efficiency stuff. I did look at it quite a few years ago and say we should basically uh, amend the Tenements Act fully for energy efficiency improvements. I don't know the current state of it. I don't think it ever really got there. Um, obviously, not all tenements are factored. You know, I used to live in Edinburgh, and Edinburgh is the, the city that kind of breaks the rule without much factoring. You have to get agreement under the Tenements Act for, for all household, from all households in a property, and you can compel anybody who objects where the majority agree. I know that. I think that's one for speak to your local authority because the rules are not always the same around how they treat factors. Tenements are wonderful buildings. Their biggest problem is, is lack of maintenance. They, you know, for a design that was way ahead of its time, really. They're big, solid stone walls. So you've got lots of thermal mass, nice high roof spaces. So, you know, stuff that people like. Most of them now have got good heating systems installed. I mean, okay, they need upgrading for climate change and stuff, but they're also breathable. So, you know, your walls are, you know, semi-porous, good for air quality. Good if you can replace your sash windows with uh, straight double glazing because that's the cheap option. Or if you're in a conservation area, then, you know, you can get the, the double glazed equivalent sashes. Topic three, geothermal heating. So uh, just to start with distinguishing between deep geothermal and shallow geothermal. Um, deep geothermal is where you've got, uh, where you d drill really, really deep boreholes and you've got hot rocks under, under the earth and you're getting heat from that great where it exists um, and you can make an awful lot of use of it problem is those boreholes particularly given the depth and everything else are really quite expensive to drill but yeah i don't know why more use isn't made of it um i don't know enough about the underlying ge uh, geology of scotland as to where those um, hotspots are but if you speak to somebody at the british geological survey or something you know they should have all that data but then you've got shallower geothermal um, which is using things like water and flooded mine workings. And um, one of my MSc students a few years ago had a, a well, she did the basically did the pilot work on this um, in Scotland in a in a, an area of um, Clyde Gateway. And uh, what she did was she got the old records from from the the coal board and the BGS's records and basically did a geographic information systems bit of work, stuck it all together, and Scottish Power Energy Networks were involved and um, they gave her, they gave her uh, funding for a, for a PhD studentship. And at the end of her MSc, me and my team sat with, them, sat with them in a meeting and they were like, right, well, well Emma's done all this work and we, we think we know where these flooded mines are under um, Clyde Gateway area where she was doing the work. And they said, right, well, now we've got to test it. And uh, what are you going to do for that? Right, well, we've got a bit of drilling kit down in the southeast of England. It's the only bit of kit in the UK or something that we could use. It'll cost us 2.2 million to move it up to Scotland. And we've just signed that contract. So I sat around going, Emma, no pressure. Shettlestone Housing Association, you guys might know, has done some, um, or you know, before this work, uh, developed a bit of housing using that sort of technology with heat pumps. And there's quite a lot of potential for it. I think my place worked out, you could heat about 40% of Glasgow. The SPT, the guys who run the, the Glasgow Underground, you can use heat from, um, from that underground and there's pilot work going on as well um, to actually use that as well as mine working. So yeah, I don't know why we don't make more of it, but this is to do with infrastructure. Topic four, a Scottish national energy company. Back in about 2014, Commonweal originally proposed this. Then when me and Ron came along, uh, we joined up with, with Gordon Morgan and Ian Wright and we wrote the Pairing Our Ambitions paper. Obviously by this point, um, the National Energy Company was back on the cards for the first time, first time, second time, do we need a third time? So we thought, right, okay, if this is, if this is gonna happen, what do we need it to look like? And the key thing I wanna push from that report is that it has to be asset owning. So it has to own infrastructure, it has to own generation. You know, we've all seen now with the, with the retail energy companies going under hand over foot and the, the, the problems that they, they're leaving their customers with. I mean, okay, they're safe, they'll be transferred to another supplier, but this was all to do with Ofgem's push that we wanted to, you know, liberalize the energy market and the more customer choice people had, the better and all that kind of rubbish. So 
yeah, that, that was, oh, let's get lots of retail energy companies who are basically all competing to buy energy from the same sources and selling it on to, to householders and are somehow getting some differentiation that they can make a profit out of. So we wrote that report and yeah, it, the, the national energy company being an asset owning um, company was one of the, was one of the key things. Other things that we wanted to push was using that energy company as a means of, of getting um, um, skilled people into people's households. Going back to EPCs again, how can we get skilled people into customers' households or clients? I, if you're talking for your poor, your poor people and vulnerable people, I, I insist on using the word client. We're dealing with people who you know, quite often can't understand an energy bill or don't have efficient ability to get onto a, onto a price comparison site on the net. So they're not customers. So again, we said, right, well, this company's got to be 100% renewable as well. Great idea, you know, it means that you've got a trusted energy supplier, you know, it's got the government's name on it, it's got everything, you know, it's got all that cachet, it's got government funding behind it, which hopefully you think, it, you know, would stop it going under. Anyway, we, 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 spoke, we met with the government a couple of times um, around then, and we said, well, right, you know, this is our paper, what do you think of it? And they said, well, what we're proposing is a retail energy company. And at that point, you know, you start, your head heart starts hitting the desk and it's like, why, oh, why, oh, why? Was that after the announcement about it? About the that was company? after the initial announcement, yeah. Right, so very shortly after the sort of public announcement at the uh, conference. But no, it was quite clear from the start to us that it was always going to be a retail energy company. Yeah, okay. And of course, then it got quietly dropped. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was over the summer. And... Then it came back on the agenda because SMP delegates voted for it and pushed it, you know, wanted to push it through. And then obviously this year, just as um, on the same day that she announced a program for government, the Nicola um, sort of quietly dropped it. And of course, that was days before, days before, days, yeah, days before the SMP conference voted again to establish a national energy company. And that was great fun. Because I then had Monica Lennon, MSP, on email to me, and I, I got on with Monica really well. I'm, you know, I'm pro-independence, but, you know, we can put that aside and we can talk, you know, we can talk energy and vulnerable people and all that kind of stuff. And I actually said to her at the start of that meeting, that was on the Friday, I said, you know, it'd be great if we had somebody in government who would put forward a bill or something to, to actually to get this thing back on the table. And she didn't tell me she was going to do it. It was only on the Monday night I got an email from her saying, oh, what do you, you, know, what do you think of this? I'm putting this forward as an amendment tomorrow. I'm like, well, hey, great, you know, well done. I'll be watching that one. So she did put forward the amendment. And she gave a really, really good speech. And then when, um, full credit to her on this, when Mark Ruskell of the Scottish Greens um, challenged her and said, oh, well, well what we Greens favour is uh, multiple public energy companies, public community energy companies. She turned around to him and said, well, that's what this report says. You know, the report is not prescriptive about whether it's one company or multiple companies. Well done, Monica. Much appreciated because I'd forgotten that was in it. And then, of course, we got to the vote. And so you have two parties, the SNP and the Greens, who both have policies saying we want to establish a public energy company voting against their own party policy. And what they're now saying, and if you caught Patrick Harvey's um, first ministerial speech today, um, the energy agency, well, we've obviously proposed an energy agency as well, which I will get onto in a second. Um, but as far as we can tell from this energy agency, inverted commas, it's starting to look like another website. We've got Home Energy Scotland. It's crap. It's run by the EST. They get quite a lot of money for telling middle-class households how to insulate their homes. Um, great, fine, you know, it's got a purpose um, for certain groups of people. I'm still waiting to see the full details of this energy agency. I'm looking forward to you know, the reading the detailed documents because I don't think there's much thinking behind it. And I think they probably are talking about yet another website um, or something very, very similar. Topic five, district heating systems. When we did Powering Our Ambitions, me and Ron, um, we thought, right, well, what's the most complex um, energy project um, that you might you might look at installing? And district heating, you know, it's pretty much the most complex you, you know, one you do with homes. So we said, well, right, how can we, you know, what do we need to get district heating off the ground in Scotland? We've actually been doing some work with Ramble, um, the, um, the big engineering consultancy who have developed, uh, designed and implemented 
um, but the most successful fourth and fifth generation district heating systems in Europe, um, mostly in Denmark. So we've been doing, we'd actually been tendering with them. We, we got together and um, put in a tender for a Scottish government contract to, to look at um, evaluating district heating systems and, and progress and stuff. So we'd actually come up with a sort of a, a basic, a set of assessment criteria for how you define successful district heating. So we had that in place. We, we actually, we were scored equally with the client who got the work for that from the Scottish government. Um, but the other client got awarded the contract. And this is after we'd actually put in it that we can, we could bring in some of the best minds in the world. You know, Ramble are an international engineering yeah. consultancy. Um, you know, these guys are the best in the business at what they do. And we were offering them a really good price. We wanted the work. No, so that was that. And I said, oh, yeah, fourth and fifth generation district heating, because I use those terms. Um, district heating is, as you guys know, a, a network of, of pipes passing heat, usually in the form of hot water or steam around groups of buildings. Um, the history goes back, oh, many, many, many years. I mean, if not, if not really to sort of ancient times. But modern district heating, um, what, fourth and fifth gen, is um, using multiple renewable energy sources to, to generate that heat. And the Danish model of fourth gen is using um, large scale solar thermal panels, so, so solar thermal farms, solar hot water farms, um, interseasonal heat stores, which are um, groups of boreholes, shallow boreholes, or covered reservoirs, effectively, reservoirs with gravel. Um, and they're used to store heat between seasons so you know you, you dump heat into it in the summer and you get the heat back out of it in the winter um, and they're absolutely critical for you know balancing these systems and then once you've got those two in place um, you can plug in any other any number of other technologies and they might be um, heat recovery from existing buildings you know um, any large building that generates a lot of waste heat um, they might be biomass where it's sustainable um, I can do the biomass story at some point but I I, biomass is the sort of the thing that's I can't escape <laughs> I do support local sustainably sourced biomass so things like offcuts from forestry um, and um, woodland management and stuff and um, the value of this sort of stuff drops off a cliff the moment you transfer you, you transport it very far anyway but if you develop local woodland for, for forestry products and that can be building products it can be agroforestry and you've got, you know, you've got biodiversity benefits in there. You've got tourism, you've got recreation, you've got creating local employment and stuff as well. It's a virtuous circuit. It's a virtuous cycle. Everything works together well. So you can use some of that biomass to, to um, get, or to, to help fuel the district heating system. The Danes in Copenhagen, their original, famous original district heating system in, in Copenhagen was using waste from a paper mill, I think. What they did was they realized that, you know, we've got this waste, we can burn it, we can generate heat. And that was the start of their district heating revolution. And that was in about 1901. Yeah, then in 1979, the year I was born, um, they introduced a heat supply act. And what that does is it, it forces developers of waste heat sources and developers of housing to, to you know, to co-locate and to, to put district heating between, you know, take the heat and use it to heat buildings. Um, it was staged in, you know, you can't just turn around and tell everybody, you know, anybody who's generating waste heat has to generate, has to connect to a housing development, uh, be it retrofit or be it new, new build. Can't do that overnight. You stage it in over a number of years to you know, help build the industry. And it's been an absolutely fantastic success. Now, the Heat Networks Act that was recently passed by the Scottish Government, despite no shortage of lobbying on our part, and despite the fact that me and my boss told them they needed a Heat Supply Act back in 2012, does not contain the equivalent of a Heat Supply Act or any heat supply type legislation. I also got told by a civil servant um, at a, a workshop I was on recently that there is no real data behind this act. I'm not sure if he was supposed to say it, but he did say it at a workshop, so I can repeat it. The level of planning behind this is really quite shockingly bad. If you don't use your data for planning district heating, what your engineers will do, quite rightly, because they're engineers, is that they will assume a worst case scenario, which is that in the middle of winter, you know, they will design a heating system to work at full capacity and deliver, you know, deliver all the heat you, you want it to deliver. On the coldest day in winter, um, when everybody is running showers and boiling kettles and you know 
maxing out their heat demand all at the same time because they're engineers. But that's not, you know, that virtually never happens, probably never happens at all. So, you know, you've got a system that, that is, you know, that will, will always tend to be over-designed anyway. If you're basing that on um, data, which, I mean, okay, it could be overestimated, it could be underestimated, but let's just sort of go down the worst case scenario. It, you've got consumption being overestimated, and that's quite often true for a lot of, um, you know, a lot of poor, poor households. You're then going to design a system which is going to cost an awful lot more than you need it to. And it's going to have an awful lot more capacity that you need it than you need it to. I'm starting to laugh because the more you talk about it, the more ridiculous you realize it is. And that's what they'll be doing. And of course, the costs involved in this are significant. If you're a developer, you're talking you know, serious amounts of money going into designing and building one of these things. You won't make profit straight away. Um, if you're a national energy company, you might decide you don't want to make profit out of it. You might decide that actually, you know, we want to give pure poor householders, you know, affordable heat at effectively cost price or something similar. You might do something like heat with rent, which I'm not necessarily in favor of, but, you know, it's an option. So that's where that's going wrong. But what we call this fourth gen model. The Danes now in a number of, of these projects have got, they've got their solar thermal supplying about 50% plus of the heat from a district heating network, uh, which is brilliant. So you can you feed the rest with local sustainable biomass or maybe some ground source heat pumps or water source heat pumps or whatever's in the area. Um, you make up the rest. But solar thermal is the cheapest, most reliable, um, most easy to capture form of renewable energy. It's fantastic whether or not whether you're sticking solar panels on on buildings or whether you're not or whether you're building a solar farm. If you put solar thermal panels on your on your house and please do, you're unlikely to get 100% of your, your hot water needs out of it. The usual figures say anywhere between about 30 and 70%, but you're getting it for free from a cheap, because they are cheap relatively, certainly the cheapest form of, of you know, building mountain renewables. You're getting it cheap, you're getting it reliable, you're getting it low maintenance. So even if you're only getting 30% of your needs, which is reality is you probably get more, it's a really, really good investment. So if you combine that with district heating and all the other clever stuff we can do, it's win, win, win all the way along. And what that work has done, and Ramble have been the leaders in this, is it's pushed energy prices from district heating down to between 30 to 50, 30 to 50 pence per kilowatt hour, euros per kilowatt hour. It's, it's competitive with any other, the other main competing renewable technologies. And then fifth generation, because I mentioned it, is when you bring cooling into it as well. So you use district heating for, for cooling buildings. So you, rather than heat, you, you pipe you know, cold water through. And the Dutch are doing some really good work on that. And funnily enough, some of the, the Dutch projects are using mine workings. So we're back to shallow geothermal again. District heating is pushed to urban areas. We don't want to see it really. I'm not saying, I'm not going to exclude it from urban areas. But if you look at the Danish projects in places like Marshall and Braestrup, they are small, uh, not, you know, they're, they're urban edges. Um, they're small rural communities. I suppose your large rural Scottish town is ideal. And, I'm thinking of places maybe like Dingwall, but those sorts of communities, the costs for connecting a household, our figures, but backed up by others as well. In an urban area, you're talking about £5,000 to connect a household. In a rural area, you're talking about 7000 So it's a, you're paying marginally more to do it, but then your benefits are so much greater. The highest areas of fuel poverty in Scotland are in rural areas, rural and island areas. Orkney's got the highest rate of all. Topic six, ground source heat pumps. We say this jokingly, but actually it is true that if you're going to get a ground source heat pump done, get your garden done at the same time, because they, they, the pipes go in very, very, uh, very shallow angle. So you need a lot of space and a lot of ground dug up to get it under your house. Um, when they, uh, once they're in, they're brilliant um, for the right types of property. And everything I say will be, you know, this is brilliant for the right type of property. Patrick said, oh, we can, we can stick them under tenements. And there's me and Scott going, um, you what? Right. Well, number one, most tenements are on brownfield sites. So the, the ground underneath, in many cases, will be highly disturbed. Ground source heat pumps work well where you've got ground that's not been disturbed a lot over the years. So again, sort of rural properties. And yeah, you need that land area. And the kit that you need to get those pipes in is obviously quite sizable. Now, I know some tenements aren't, you know, some backcourts aren't completely enclosed, but you generally think of a tenement having an enclosed backcourt. How the hell do you get the kit in? 
Hence my comment that, you know, does he think he's flying it in in the TARDIS or something? But these things are also quite expensive, aren't they? And okay, you could argue over the years you could make it back, but how many people could you get to agree? I mean, how many are in a tenement, you know, 10, 12 flats or less? You know, as I say, how difficult it is to get people to agree, even to a repair in a common, a common property, you know. Well, there's your thing, get your repairs done first. You look at that Scottish House Condition Survey data, but over 50% of properties in Scotland um, need some level of repair to critical elements. Get that done first. I think that was one of the things that Craig JL said when he spoke, was one of, the, one of the very key things for people is better insulated houses as a starting point. And I think yeah. to get these pumps, you almost would have to have a property. Properties would also have insulated to make it then worthwhile put it in, wouldn't it? Yeah, and then when you do that, your savings and your, your everything else are much more significant. And yeah, you need to do the whole package and, you know, Craig and yeah. I will agree on all this. You need to do a whole house. So you go in, you look at what yeah. the maintenance problems are, you solve those, you put in the energy efficiency measures like the insulation, and then you think about, you know, putting heat pumps in or sticking solar panels on the roof or anything. And this goes back to, to EPCs. So if I get an EPC done on this place, it will, it will almost certainly say you've got a large roof area and large south facing stick solar panels on it solar panel rakes the site you'll generally be quoted for, for, for solar photovoltaics that generate electricity i think an average installation is like five six thousand maybe and um, prices where they are coming down but more for somewhere like this because i've got a large roof there and we, at some point we want to make use of it so you see that on an epc and you think well actually five six k is not a bad investment right okay in order to do that um, and we will do it at some point I'm going to have to get my roof retiled because the roof's not the roof tiles are not going to last the 25 years or maybe even a bit more that you'd expect those solar panels to last. Estimated cost on this place for for retiling the roofs probably between 10 and 15k. Right, so that's my cost's gone up fourfold just from the start, and that's before any investigative work turns you know turns up other issues that that might you know invariably costs get added. Topic seven bringing all Scottish properties up to the required standards. It goes back to the general comment about, like, in the sort of programme for government or the arrangement is that, you know, we're going to get every property in Scotland up to EPCC by 20, I think it's 35, I can't remember, off the top of my head. Yeah, I think... It's, it's, a, it's a great it's a great headline, but actually, as you say, it, it, you know, looking at each individual property is, is, is a massive ask, you know, and I think we've talked before about, you know, we haven't really got a detailed handle on the housing stock. I mean, the, the house condition survey stuff's great, you know, but we only do an average of a couple of, maybe we're lucky, a couple of thousand properties a year. And it's such a diverse range of housing types and uh, conditions across Scotland. It's, it's a massive ask. I mean, it's a massive, massive ask. Uh, I think 50% of houses, give or take, are below... EPCC. Some of those in reality will be much more yeah. energy efficient than some. Yeah, will be you yeah, exactly. You know, you talked about your, yeah, and then you get into things like listed buildings and um, all that sort yeah. of stuff. And how do you actually, you know, how do you bring up a, you know, a nice detached sandstone villa in uh, Kelvin Bridge up to EPCC? It's you know without some significant interventions. And, yeah. Yeah, and Liam Kerr in his one of his questions, Patrick today. Um, I mean. I hate saying nice things about Tories, but he was right. He's like, we're going to be doing 360-odd houses a day. And actually, um, have a read of Robin, Robin's article on Commonweal today. The way we're going, we'll be doing these things in stages. Yeah. So really, we should be saying, we want every household up. We should be getting them up to band A. We don't do yeah. it in stages, because what will happen, and this is one of the points Robin makes today, is that, will go in and do X amount of work, you know, installation, maybe putting an ASHP or something on. And then when it comes to getting them from, what was it, band C or band B, whatever it is they're currently yeah. proposing, up to band A, which is what we need when they're effectively zero carbon, somebody will be going in and ripping out some of that work in order to put new stuff in. Yeah. So we'd be much better off getting a proper handle on where the real you know, problem properties are and targeting those from day one and getting them up to a or you know an equivalent a band and yeah it's going to cost money broad agreement is that that getting the housing scottish housing stock up to that standard is going to cost us you know over that period um give or take 38 40 billion 
and Liam picked him up on today as where that I think it was Liam, where's that money going to come from? So the Scottish government's apparently going to put in about 1.5 million or something. And Patrick was asked, where's the rest going to come from? And he couldn't give an answer properly. Um, some of it will obviously come from householders and some of it may come from the private sector. And Topic 8, incineration plants. I mean, we've just managed to knock back a huge incineration plant a proposal by Simon Howe. I don't know if you're you're aware of this. This is this is a battle that's been going on here for about ten years. He started off with a small one, and then um, proposed a bigger one, and um, that got knocked back about three weeks ago. And then the next thing that happened was uh, that the moratorium that was meant to happen on large-scale incineration plants was pushed back until March next year which will probably give Simon Howe time to put in another another application. I mean, areas like Coatbridge and Bells Hill and other places, we are completely under siege just now in terms of things like this being planned. I, I don't know if this is a knock-on effect of coming out of Europe and is no longer being subject to, you know, the regulations and landfill and, and stuff like that. But basically, we're, we're becoming a dumping ground for most of Scotland, really, to feed these kind of plants. You, you know, we, we would have been taking in rubbish, you know, from Glasgow, from from all over the, um, from all over the belt and stuff. I, I just wondered what your what your thoughts were on it, and you know, where, yeah. where we can head in this, because planning law really needs to change. Yes, yeah. A colleague of mine at GCU was involved with beating an incinerator as well, and I actually, I think we've got to be careful when we use that term because. If it's burning waste and it's not doing anything with the heat, then yes, of course, it's an incinerator. Um, but some groups use the term incinerators to include energy from waste, which I am, I don't like the idea, but we do have a big waste recycling gap in Scotland and it ain't going anywhere. In terms of global comparisons, we might not be that bad, but we, you know, we are not on path for getting down to zero waste by 2025. I think Zero Waste Scotland might disagree with that, but... Um, you know, we do have a lot of waste and if you can't recycle it properly because you don't have the capacity, then I think it does make sense, at least in the short term, by the short term, I mean, maybe 10 years or so to convert that into energy, um, which is maybe by burning it or by, or by digesting it in an anaerobic digestion, digester, and anaerobic digestion is great for things like farm waste, um, where, you know, you're not going to landfill it anyway and you haven't got any of that, you can't recycle it. Um, and you can connect anaerobic digestion to the history heating system, so great. Um, but the, the carbon-free, poverty-free report was funded by CALA, um, and um, that's one of the only times I've ever worked for a commercial company, um, and I only did it because when, um, when they approached us and we said, you know, well, they, they, they liked their work, they said, well, can you, can you look at bio, um, bio LPG, liquid petroleum gas for us? You know, this is a product we've got coming out. Uh, we think it will be really helpful for um, particularly fuel poor households, but those who are off the gas grid, we sort of had a chat with them and we were like, you know, you're a commercial company, you've obviously got an agenda here. And they turned around to us and they said, look, you know, we're not going to take any editorial control of this report whatsoever. You know, what you guys are, we've contracted you to do something, you know, we're not going to have any um, say in what you're going to come out with. And they also said, right, well, you know, any data that you want on, on our bio LPG, we will give you it. And full credit to Callot, everything we got, we asked for, and they had no interference in the process whatsoever. So, and we've got a disclaimer at the start of the report to say that clearly. It was one of the best projects I've ever worked on. And the, the case was really, really clear. Um, you can take bio LPG and you can get that from digesting waste and you can plug it straight into an existing gas heating system. It's plug and play. And it's easily competitive, if not cheaper than most forms of, of you know, alternative energy. So not saying it's a long-term solution. And, you know, the report does say that we don't think it's, you know, the be all and end all for the, you know, the rest of humanity's time, but it works. Topic nine, smart meters. The smart, well, the smart meters that are coming in the rollout, that are coming in the rollout, are crap. If you're one of these people who keeps track of your energy bills and you know how much you're spending and how much you're using, like you know, I, I, I don't have a direct debit set up with Ecotricity. I, I'm on, I, you know, I, I take my meter readings every, you know, every month, wherever it is. Um, if you're doing that, you've got no need for a smart meter, partly because you're supplying the energy company with as good and accurate data anyway. They're also not very smart. 
they are one effectively one-way communication, which is not what I understand to be smart. Um, you can get kit from the likes of Google um, and other companies are available where, you know, you've got the Internet of Things and all your devices can talk to each other and um, do clever stuff like that. And if that floats your boat, then great. I'm not, I, I, I used to, but I still am a member of No2ID and I, it's not something that concerns me. And also the flip side of that is by giving energy companies accurate data and that may be by smart meters. I'm not going to say they're completely useless, but for a lot of people, they are a bit of a waste of time. It means that they're, they're able to manage supply and demand and balance the grid and do all this stuff that we need to do to keep energy prices down anyway and to make sure you get accurate billing. Can I say that that kind of ties on to what we were talking about earlier on um, about people not understanding about tariffs, etc. You're talking about smart meters. They do have advantages, especially for the vulnerable, the disabled and some, some yeah. elderly people as well. The likes of myself who's got a visual impairment, I don't particularly want somebody coming into my house and especially where one of my meters, my gas meter is, is in the most inaccessible place halfway up a cupboard that is underneath stairs so you have to bring everything out before you can even get to it and if they're asking me for a meter reading I can't see it to give a yeah. meter reading so there are always pros and cons <laughs> and again if, to get an accurate reading instead of always having an estimate reading which can get you into even more poverty with yeah. not understanding that it's only an estimate this is not actually what what yeah. you've paid for isn't actually covering your whole bill so no i think what we should be doing with smart meters is what new york have done and they are funding the proper kit the the google standard kit um not the cheap crap and that's the sort of stuff that really you know gets me interested topic 10 hydrogen um last thing we should be doing with with hydrogen is heating homes with it this is why in another hat i've got i'm an associate of a group called uh, well, I think they're registered as a company, but 100% Renewable Limited, uh, Renewable UK Limited. Um, they're a group that formed out of a, a friend of mine who's a, 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 an academic at Aberdeen uh, campaigning for 100% renewable energy in the UK, funnily enough, does what it says on the tin. I wrote their hydrogen, their hydrogen position statement. Yeah, the last thing we should be doing with hydrogen is heating homes with it. A lot of organizations ranging from the International Energy Agency, who tend to be quite conservative um, through ourselves and Friends of the Earth and others have said what we need is a hydrogen hierarchy. Hydrogen um, comes in many colors, of which we're only interested in the green one, which is where it's produced from renewable energy. The fossil fuel industry are lobbying like hell on hydrogen at the moment because um, it's, it's another way of keeping them afloat. Uh, blue hydrogen, which is what you're going to people will hear a lot about is where hydrogen is stripped out of um, fossil gas, natural gas, and the carbon, the carbon dioxide from that is then captured and stored using carbon capture and storage, which is a technology which is hugely expensive, which is still not proven at scale. Go back at the back in uh, well over ten years ago, it was all right. Oh yeah, carbon capture and storage is you know it's on the rise. It's it's here. We can do it. Well. Point me at a big carbon capture and storage unit anywhere in the world that is up and running and functional and is ready to be scaled to all existing, you know, all existing power stations. It's not there. And anyway, we should not be extracting any more natural gas or any more than we absolutely need to. You know, the science is really quite clear that on fossil fuels, in terms of the resources that we currently know about and can extract using conventional technologies before we even get to fracking and coal gasification, that sort of stuff, just on that amount that we know about and we can get to easily, that has got to stay in the ground. Otherwise, we will be into scary climate change territory. Now, we currently globally produce only about 1% of hydrogen from green, uh, from green sources, which is effectively, or almost all of it, is using electricity from, say, a wind farm and using that to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And there are wind, there are wind farms around uh, now that are using that as storage. So hydrogen is great for doing that, and it is great for decarbonizing heavy industry because heavy industries are a real case in point. And of course, you may have seen in the news today that there's some of our manufacturing plants are likely to be um, switched off during the, the coming winter because of fuel prices. Hydrogen's great for that. We think it's good for shipping as well. And you've got co-location there as well. So if you're thinking of, think of a, think of a port with a bit of an, with an offshore wind farm, 
um, you know, you can get your hydrogen storage into that. Um, you can then use some of that hydrogen to fuel ships or ferries. Um, there's a project up in Orkney, which one of the energy working group members is, is very involved with on turning the ferry, using hydrogen to power the ferries, converting them. That's going to be great, hopefully. It's not without its technical problems, but I think they're going to get there. We can use it for shipping because ships float. Um, you need large amounts of storage for, for hydrogen fuel. And shipping is a real problem for decarbonizing because, you know, running ships on electricity is not <laughs> How big is your battery going to be? Hydrogen's light. You can store it in large fuel tanks. We can convert tankers and stuff to it. Great. Done. Now, you think of all that energy, you know, all that hydrogen demand just for decarbonizing heavy industry and shipping and stuff. Right. Well, once you get, once you do that, you're already well past the amount of green hydrogen we're producing anyway. Hydrogen's also not a great carrier for heat either. Piping it into homes and using it in gas boilers, it can be done, they are available. But in order to get the grid up to, um, to, to using 100% hydrogen, um, we're basically going to have to replace most of the gas grid. Um, you can pump hydrogen into the existing gas grid, depending on who you speak to, um, you get up to about 30, 20 to 30% of the gas in, in a, you know, a pipework will, can be hydrogen and then the rest has got to be um, methane, either whether it's biologically generated or fossil methane or whatever. Um, beyond that, because hydrogen's you know a very small um, molecule, it escapes from the pipes easy. At that point, you've got to replace the pipes, and we're talking about replacing basically our whole gas network if we're going to use 100% hydrogen. Yeah, the guy from which the Bosch was saying that yeah, most new boilers can take up to 20% emissions. Yeah. He was interesting. You're saying beyond that, um, they would have to modify all the boilers. Because it was talking about the flame point, basically, of hydrogen. Beyond 20%, the, the, when you ignite the gas in the boiler, again, the thing goes back to the molecule thing, the flame can go back down the pipe, blow everything up, which would be not a good idea. So, yeah, I was speaking to him about um, air source heat pumps, but we got onto hydrogen. Heating homes with hydrogen is the last thing we should be doing. No, I, I, yeah. He said we've only got one working prototype, and that was it. That's what he said. So I'm, I'm not sure they're throwing their lot in too much with hydrogen boilers. No, it's the push. We've got obviously we've got the pilot project not far from me in Fife, which is oh, uh, this is being recorded. So I'll be careful quoting exact figures, but it's about <laughs> it's about thirty five millions going into it for about three hundred homes. Um, I wrote an article on hydrogen for Source News back when Source News was still running separately from Commonweal, um, and it was the costs per household were yeah significantly more than they needed to be put it that way um and you're thinking you're playing all this money in to do a small number of households at really quite significant costs you could be spending that money on insulation and maintaining them and actually improving their energy efficiency first once again many thanks to isp for sharing this fascinating topic with us and if you'd like to see the video version it's on indie live radio's youtube channel indie live. Indie live. Indie live.